Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, October 4th. New data from Stats Canada puts the price of raising a child at $350,000 per child from birth to age 17. We break down the numbers and discuss the financial challenges parents face in Canada with Sandy Young, personal finance writer and author of The Money Master. Did you know that Canada is the only G7 country without a national school lunch program? We discuss the importance of such a program and the role nutrition plays in learning with Rachel Engler-Stringer, Professor of Community Health from the University of Saskatchewan. Could a new drug help you get chiseled from the comfort of your own couch? We discuss the research being done on a new drug that actually mimics exercise with Thomas Burris, Director of the University of Florida Genetics Institute. Having a child could be the biggest investment of your life. New data from Statistics Canada puts the cost of child rearing from birth to 17 years old at $350,000 per child. Joining us to help understand the cost of parenthood and some strategies to help parents save is Sandy Young, personal finance writer and award-winning author of The Money Master. Good morning to you, Sandy. Good morning, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So if we, if we look at the economics behind it, I wonder if you can break down what factors contribute to the significant cost of raising children in Canada as, as highlighted by this recent study. Sure. Yeah, I would say that the top three costs to raising a, a child would be housing, transportation, and food. And so first off with housing, say a typical family that has two adults and two kids with a medium income, uh, over the course of raising kids from birth up until age 17, uh, families will spend on average of $85,000, which translates to about $4,700 per year. And we're seeing this because with interest rates uh, peaking this year, higher mortgage rates for homeowners, um, and a lot of major cities across this country still have sky high prices. So uh, it's definitely making an impact um, you know, on affordable housing. And then when it comes to transportation, uh, a medium income family will spend over um, from birth to age 17 years, will spend about $60,000, which is, uh, which when you think about it, most oftentimes a family will have a car uh, to get around to school and extracurricular activities. Gas prices still remain quite high. And because of the low inventory um, and with a surge in demand lately, we're seeing that um, it now costs an average of $66,000 just to buy a brand new car. Wow. Uh, so it's uh, quite staggering there. Well, so I guess, uh, yeah, outside looking in, I'm thinking about, you know, and I have four kids myself, you know, buying, uh, you know, shoes, uh, packing lunches, putting, uh, you know, backpacks for school and stuff. But this is a whole picture, uh, Sandy, uh, if you can, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, in the sense that you factor in the portion of the mortgage because you need a bigger house because you have kids. And, and maybe I could drive a smart car, but I have two kids and I couldn't fit them in said smart car. So is that it, the whole picture? Uh, yes, it, uh, definitely. And especially when you have multiple kids, uh, you might even have more than one car, right? Mm -hmm. um, which then factors into paying for more parking and insurance and maintenance. So it definitely can add up quickly. Okay. Uh, what strategies can parents in different income brackets use to manage child rearing expenses? What do you suggest? 
Yeah, so as a parent myself to a toddler, um, some of the strategies I personally enjoy uh, using is that for clothing, we know that kids just grow up so fast and they, uh, you know, outgrow their clothes pretty quickly. And um, depending on where you live, uh, you know, you might be able to find a local thrift store where they sell gently used items at discounted prices, or even the traditional, um, you know, having family members or friends giving hand-me-downs. And mm. uh, that personally, that's helped us save hundreds of dollars this year alone. And then for food expenses, as we've seen going to the grocery store, the prices, uh, you know, still are, are quite high and we know that the, our prime minister has asked the CEOs of all the big grocery chains to come up with a plan for this Thanksgiving um, to help keep prices low. But what families can do in the meantime is to look at your local flyer, check out um, for, for deals and when items go on sale, buy them in bulk, mm. especially pantry items um, and you can buy things so that you can freeze them for future use. And uh, meal planning is also pretty helpful so that you're not thinking the day of what are you going to cook for dinner. So having a plan and uh, sticking to your grocery budget will, will go a long way. Speaking with Sandy Young, a personal finance writer and award-winning author of The Money Master. And uh, Sandy, within this uh, data, uh, the number $350,000 to raise a child from birth to 17 years old. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a huge bill. I'm wondering, does that include post-secondary education and how would that change that number? Yeah, um, as um, the article from the Global Mail, it does take into consideration of families who do help support children in post-secondary uh, school. And for Canadian citizens, uh, even permanent residents, tuition fees alone are between 2,500 to 11,400 per year. So that would translate to about 10,000 to 45,000 um, over say a four year program. And um, not only do you have to pay tuition, but you have to factor in textbooks, school supplies. Mm -hmm. Um, housing, food, transportation, there's a lot. And so definitely look into, um, you know, getting financial assistance, whether it's student loans, grants, scholarships, um, or starting a uh, registered education savings plan, mm. as known as RESP, to help figure out a plan so that your uh, children, um, you know, get the financial assistance that they need. In your experience, and I know you're a parent yourself, you're a writer, and again, the author of The Money Master, uh, do you think parents going in should, you know, get some financial education when it comes to parenting and preparing for the costs of raising children in Canada? Most definitely. I mean, we're seeing time and time again that uh, on average, half of Canadians are living paycheck to paycheck. Um, even a recent survey showed that more Canadians are feeling a lot of financial stress given our current economic situation. And so it's important for parents to sit down and have a conversation about what their financial goals are, what their priorities are, and to create a plan to work towards them. And there's a ton of great financial literacy resources out there, whether you're going to the local library, uh, reading books, listening to podcasts, or even joining um, online uh, forums or groups, just to get started and arm yourself with financial knowledge so that you can make wise decisions. Do we know, and I don't want to put you on the spot with this, uh, Sandy, do we know uh, how our costs in Canada to raise a child compared to maybe other countries in the world? Uh, I know that compared to the United States, it's probably 
um, pretty similar uh, if you factor in the you know conversion rate. Um, but I, I would say we're pretty much on par with the United States. Um, but yeah, I mean, given the fact that the the newest um, I guess program that's come out is the national child care program where by 2026 um, we're looking at all provinces and territories to reach 10 on average of ten dollars a day for child care which is probably one of the biggest um you know impacts for families um within the past decade so that is something that we're also our family has been uh, been uh, receiving the benefits from and so um it will definitely help the wallets of uh, parents. And I think I speak for all parents when I say we could use all the help we can get these days. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning, Sandy. We appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you. That is Sandy Young, personal finance writer and award-winning author of The Money Master. You can find out more about what Sandy does as well. She's got her website at Sandy, S-A-N-D-Y, Young, Y-O-N-G dot com, SandyYoung.com. Canada is the only G7 country without a national school lunch program. Should we get on board with this? The benefits of these lunch programs as well? What do they offer? We'll, we'll get there in a second. But to discuss everything, we're joined by Rachel Engler-Stringer, Professor of Community Health and Epidemiology at the University of Saskatchewan. Good morning to you, Rachel. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I, I, I was surprised by this, and I mean, this is obviously your world. Uh, do you find a similar, similar reaction when you mentioned to, to folks in your circle that Canada is the only G7 country without a national food uh, program for schools? Yeah, so I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing because those of us who were born and raised here, we just kind of assume that the way that we do things with parents sending lunch to school with their kids is being sort of the norm. But actually, if you look at us in comparison to most places in the world, we are not. So globally, it's close to three quarters of kids who receive a meal at school. Um, and, and, and certainly in affluent countries, as you stated, that, you know, national school food programs are very, very much, very much the norm. Okay, well, uh, let's let's break this down. I mean, it, it seems to be working. For example, I have four kids, and when I when I grew up, I had my lunch with me. It was packed by mom, and as I got older, I packed my own lunch. I'm encouraging my kids to pack their lunch. But is the case the fact that uh, not every family has that opportunity or the resources, and, and kids are going to school without lunches? Is that the issue? Yeah, that's part of the issue. I, I'd say there's actually a bigger issue at play. So if we look at National uh, Statistics Canada data, um, where they survey uh, Canadians on a regular basis, um, and that includes dietary assessment, what we find is that during the school day, so those hours between 9 and 3 approximately, uh, that children across the socioeconomic spectrum are actually eating very poorly in Canada. So, you know, less than half eating sufficient vegetables and fruit. We see extremely high proportions of calories coming from uh, sort of minimally nutritious foods is what we say in the in the nutrition world. But really what that means is highly heavily processed um, foods that are really high in salt, fat and sugar. So, you know, overall, kids in Canada are not eating very well during the school day. And the way that they've addressed this in other places in the world is by having uh, school food programs. And so, the reason why they're so effective is that in a social situation where everyone's eating together, kids tend to eat, um, be much more willing to eat healthy foods. I don't know about you, but my experience with my kids and certainly what we hear in our research is that 
Uh, even when you send a healthy meal to school, a lot of the healthy stuff comes back. <laughs> it's the yeah. snack foods, those granola bars that get eaten, and the rest of it is uh, is sent back home again because it's not what other kids are eating or because they don't have a lot of time, and it just, you know, it just doesn't seem quite so appealing. So when you create a situation where all kids are eating the same thing at school, you know, and meeting, of course, dietary needs and religious restrictions and all those kinds of things because there's lots of ways to do that, um, you know, kids eat much better and the, their, their uh, nutrition is much greater, which, you know, of course, contributes to long-term health and contributes to um, better educational outcomes and so on. And then, of course, there are the kids that are not, whose families are struggling. And at this point, we're looking at around a quarter of kids uh, who are living in families where their parents are, are struggling to be able to provide healthy food for them. Um, so, of course, it benefits those kids as well. Okay, so from your experience, from your research, who is responsible to coordinate the efforts to build a sustainable school meal program, or are there different players in the game? There are a number of different players, and I don't think there's any one, um, you know, there, there's any one sort of group that should be doing this. So, um, you know, I, I uh, support the Coalition for Healthy School Food with, with research, and uh, what, the, what the coalition puts forward, you know, their organizations, I think at this point, 265 organizations across the country um, in all sorts of sectors, but mostly related to child, uh, child health. Um, what they uh, say is that, you know, at this point, we've got, we've got some provincial governments are contri- contributing some dollars. Sometimes we have municipal governments, depending on the way the government is organized. Um, we have a nonprofit organizations who are often very involved in the, in the provision of food. Um, and that in, you know, in, in the future, the way that a, that a national school food program could work is to include all of those organizations, uh, plus families and plus the federal government. So really their focus is on trying to get the federal government to uh, make their contribution. Cause currently, you know, they, they do not provide us with any kind of national school food policy, nor um, any, any federal funding other than to, uh, uh, First Nations in some cases um, for school food programs. You say federal government, uh, and by the way, we're speaking with uh, Professor Rachel Engler Stringer. Is she's the uh, with the Community Health and Epidemiology at the University of Saskatchewan. You say the federal government, and I can hear the texters on the keyboard saying, <laughs> "Oh, someone has to pay for it, and it's me. I don't want to pay for it." Uh, but Rachel, I think people can get behind something when they see the value. So you believe that the value of uh, you know, obviously, if you're a parent, you you have you know some skin in the game. But if you're not a parent, don't have anybody in the school system, you think you just spending bucks but uh, societal uh, gains from having kids with nutrition uh, in their bellies every day would pay off oh absolutely i mean there there's there's research internationally we don't have because we don't have this in canada we don't have canadian data but internationally the return on investment it's about double what uh, what is what is actually invested and that's at minimum so i mean i think there's plenty of there's plenty of reasons to you know ensure that our kids get through the edu- their education um, and and succeed and so on i mean you know if we're talking tax dollars and people who are contributing to society all of these things are really really important you know we want our kids to be healthy there's actually very few things as a society that i would argue are more important to invest in than our than our children um you know and then in addition to that there's the there's the you know uh, better health outcomes so fewer chronic diseases and so on 
Um, and then, it, and, you know, in addition to that, I think we also have to think about this from in terms of contributions. We're not necessarily arguing, and this isn't the case. In fact, it's not that it's free everywhere. It's that um, so in in many countries, like so, Japan is one of the best. They have one of the best school food programs in the entire world. Um, you know, parents do do contribute a portion of the cost, and the way it's done is that it's not means tested because that brings all sorts of stigma and and also an administrative burden um but the way that it's done is that you know parents contribute they're they're shown what the cost is and then they are they are asked to contribute whatever they can afford so sort of a pay what you can model towards the program so you know there's plenty of reason to think i mean actually we have data to show this we've done we've done research on this that that if given the opportunity uh knowing that their kids would get a healthy meal at school that many families those who could afford would be willing to contribute uh towards the cost so I think we have to think about this in the we have to think about this in a really big way about like how we want what we want our kids to have at school what 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 is part of a comprehensive school system um, and and thinking about the long term health of our children. Yeah, you just uh, you know kind of reframed it for me right there, Rachel, in the sense that if I'm if it costs me four to six dollars a day, whatever it might be, three to six dollars a day to yeah. pack lunch for my kids, and, and you look at that over a month, and it's fifty or sixty bucks a month or whatever it might be, you're you're just you know funneling that money to the school system, and it's taken care of. Yeah, well, exactly, and then I think, and you know, and and your, the, the chances are the food is going to be higher quality because there could be hot food. There, there's a lot more options when, um, you know, we're talking about a meal that is prepared uh, and served to kids at school, right? You know, the things we can send and what our kids will eat as well yeah, yeah. <laughs> are are somewhat limited, right? I, I mean, I think. This is the way they see it in places like Japan. So in Japan, um, they also really integrate into their school system. So kids serve each other. They clean up afterwards. They have, they're taught about what they're eating and where it comes from and how it's produced. I mean, there's, there's, there, the best programs in the world really are see school meal programs as very much integrated into the school day as a whole. And I think, you know, we, we, one of the few advantages of being a late adopter in Canada is we can learn from the best. We can learn from the mistakes of others and we can learn from the best and, and create a program that really meets the needs of all the different types of communities that exist in Canada. Great points. Uh, thanks so much for your discussion this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. That is Rachel Engler-Stringer, Professor of Community Health and Epidemiology at the University of Saskatchewan. Could it be that a new drug could help you get fit without lifting heavy weights five days a week? Joining us to discuss his research is Thomas Burris, Director of University of Florida Genetics Institute. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning. Okay, let's let's break this down. Can you explain the concept and and how your company and your research uh, moves toward getting a drug that could mimic exercise? How, how does it differ from a traditional drug? So, so it's actually quite similar to a traditional drug in terms of how we're designing th- these types of compounds, and and we're trying to design them so that they can treat diseases. We aren't necessarily. Uh, trying to design them to replace exercise, but there are a number of diseases where exercise is a major uh, component of the, the, the treatment. And many people can't exercise or they can't exercise to the degree that, that, that would be therapeutic. And so we're trying to mimic that with a drug that actually activates a series of, of genes that are also activated when individuals exercise. Wow. And so these compounds mimic that. 
I, I believe the term is, what is it, exercise memetics? Is that what we're calling it? Yes. Okay, so what does memetics mean exactly to the layperson? So they, they actually induce a, um, a similar physiological response, so a similar response in, in the cells in your muscle that, that, uh, that exercise does. So we, we compare, when we design these drugs, we compare the uh, effect of exercise uh, in one group to the effect of the drug alone in another group and can see that many of the, the changes that occur in muscles that both the gene level and, and the structural level are, um, are similar. And not only at that level, but also the fact that they induce a, uh, a effect in the mice that, that allow them to uh, run longer uh, and uh, further uh, with, with only the drug. So it, it basically uh, makes it appear like the animals have been uh, endurance training even though they haven't. Wow, incredible. We don't, when I, when I go and I want to you know, work on my biceps, I lift and I push the load of weight until I tear, stretch the muscles, tear them, and then we have to reconstruct them through rest. And I've also been to physio where you, you put certain devices that send electrodes that make your muscles move, and that creates some, some flow and perhaps some regenerative uh, you know, uh, healing. When I take a drug like this, is this more cellular or will my muscles actually move because I've taken the drug? So they, they wouldn't move because you're taking the drug, and this is a bit different than, than the, uh, the methods that you're describing because those, those methods are, are really coupled to uh, resistance training, and uh, these really mimic uh, endurance-type training, so aerobic exercise, so things that are associated with uh, uh, endurance-type training. If you think of a marathon uh, type of athlete versus a weightlifter, they, these are uh, pushing you towards the, the marathon type of athlete. Uh, so uh, improved endurance uh, and the, the type of exercise that, that, you know, is typically prescribed for people with diabetes, obesity, uh, also uh, individuals that are just getting older and they, they lose muscle mass. Uh, these are, are drugs that may may facilitate uh, treatment of, of these types of conditions, as well as genetic disorders where muscle is deteriorating, mm -hmm. uh, things like mus muscular dystrophy, where actually exercise itself may damage the muscle. Uh, but we do know that uh, uh, the program that, that is induced by uh, exercise helps that muscle, but the physical stress damages the muscle. So a drug uh -huh. like this could replace exercise without uh, inducing the damaging components of exercise. Uh, so that may be helpful in some genetic disorders. Oh, for sure. I, I can see that. Uh, I'm wondering, because it's the drug that's dominated headlines for the past 18 months or so. That's Ozempic, initially developed for diabetes and uh, led to weight loss. Did that influence the pursuit of exercise memetics? So we've been, uh, my lab's been pursuing the, this particular class of exercise memetics for over 10 years. And we also work on another class uh, so, so this was not uh, driven by the fact that uh, you know Ozembic and uh, these class of molecules called GLP-1 agonists uh, are out there. They've been pursued simultaneously. Of course, with complex diseases, we we typically approach them with multiple uh, paths, and some work and some don't. Uh, I think what what's key is that Ozembic and and that class of drugs work on uh, reducing hunger. And uh, there's also a, a, an issue that some people have seen that there's a, a loss in muscle mass because with the reduced nutrition, you can lose uh, muscle mass. 
And so combining it uh, with uh, a drug that would target the muscle and, and improve uh, metabolism uh, could be uh, used in combination uh, for improved efficacy or some people who are resistant to the effects of the of Ozempic and Monjuro uh, or they just can't handle the side effects uh, in, in it, that, that are seen in some individuals may be able to use a, a drug like this, which targets increased uh, metabolic rate. Would, like, for example, if I, if I was morbidly obese and I went on Ozempic or just, you know, went on a, an extreme diet, we do know that when you lose weight, you'll lose muscle a lot of the time. Does this drug, and could it help preserve lean muscle mass uh, during the process of weight loss? Yes, exactly. That's, that's what we hope to see. Uh, we've not done the experiments yet doing combinations. It is our plan to, to do those types of experiments in mice uh, because, you know, there, there is a, a clear issue with the, with the decreased food intake that people see with, the, with Ozimbic and, and similar compounds that there is a, a risk of losing muscle mass. And so if you can uh, add a component uh, of, of exercise, whether it be through a, a drug, uh, or actual exercise or a combination of exercise with a drug that people that, that can't exercise to the degree that you'd like to see them, uh, this, this may be helpful. I'm, I'm just wondering through your research, and I know your research uh, absolutely at this point focused on mice, but would this be something that would be beneficial, for example, for seniors as they're getting older, losing some muscle mass, but can't exactly go and lift weights or be that vigorous with physical activity? That, that's what we believe. Uh, we, we certainly are interested in that. We're, we're examining that, and uh, that is a key area that we've been concerned with uh, because with the reduced uh, muscle mass as you age, you also are at increased risk for development of metabolic diseases, and hopefully this could uh, uh, put those, uh, 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 delay those events. Uh, the other thing is frailty. Uh, with age and the decreased muscle mass, uh, often there are falls, and those falls lead to uh, morbidity and mortality. Uh, so that's clearly a, a path that, that, that we're looking at. All right. I know you're in the stages and you're researching this. You've been doing it for a decade. Uh, but at this point, have you found side effects for using a drug like this and, uh, you know, what you would do to combat those side effects? We haven't really seen any any significant side effects to this to this point. Uh, of course, it's early stages. Uh, we're we're, uh, we're doing the types of toxicology studies that you really need to uh, take this to clinical trials. So uh, we're we're at the at the early stages, but we've not seen anything that would be uh, limiting at this point. So that's that's certainly good news. And uh, last but not least, and I know you don't have a crystal ball in front of you, or maybe you do, Thomas. I've never met you. I've never been in your office. Uh, how long would something like this take in, in, in the process? I know an overnight success when it comes to something like a discovery like this is certainly not overnight. Uh, how long potentially could we see this going to market after human trials? So, so um, as you know, the regulatory hurdles are significant, and, and uh, a lot of those are based on safety. Uh, as I mentioned, we're, we're doing the toxicology studies uh, uh, that would allow us to uh, initiate the, the uh, clinical trials. And I would I foresee that clinical trials could start in in as few as two years, and then I think we're we're talking at least an additional uh, three years at least uh, for approval. So I think you know the, the at the best case scenario we're looking at five years to uh, okay. where it would be approved for for general use. All right, so I'm not going to cancel my gym membership quite yet. I'm going to stay on this straight and narrow. In the meantime, thank you so much for your time, Tom. We appreciate it. Thank you. That is Thomas Burris, director of University of Florida Genetics Institute.